and welcome to the latest edition of the Cyber and Risk Leader Series. Today, we've got a very special guest, Katie Arrington. Hi, Katie. Can you first introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a little bit about what you're doing for work at the moment? So my name is Katie Arrington. I was the former Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. So I was over about $380 billion of spend uh, from uh, weapons to infrastructure to ensuring DIB, the defense industrial base, was getting compliant with cyber requirements. I left the department in February of this year, and I have a lovely little boutique consulting firm called LD Innovations, where I am working hard to help companies get compliant, uh, look at risk mitigation strategies, and not take that burden on full-time as something they may not have the resources to do. Fantastic. So before we get any further, I always like to ask, like, what do you get up to outside of work? So what things are you interesting? What, what do you do with your spare time? Grandchildren. I love, <laughs> love my four grandchildren. I spend my time traveling to go see them. And aside from that, I will say I am probably the worst, but I, I give it my all pickleball player in all of South Carolina. Horrible. But it's not that I'm not giving everything I've got. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So you kind of mentioned a little bit about your current role. So can you give an overview of your career? How did you get into cyber? Did you start off in IT? Absolutely not. You know, from a little girl born in Fairfax, Virginia, I, from a very young age, thought I was going to be a lawyer. Absolutely was my track, my, my goal. Life changed for me drastically. I did a lot of, made a lot of decisions. I was a military wife. I'd gone to school for about two years for political science. Uh, married a grunt in the U.S. Army and traveled around the world with him for 15 years. So I went to more technical colleges. I joke around, I've taken accounting 101 nine times. I have more college credits than a doctor uh, would need, but I have no degree. So I am the poster child for you don't need a degree to understand uh, cybersecurity, uh, chief, uh, the role of chief information security officer. I do have, you know, my credentials of CISSP, et cetera. But when I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where I currently reside in 2001, prior to that, I had worked for a freight forwarder called Expeditors, um, and it was a U.S. customs broker and uh, ended up going down to Charleston, uh, opened a company and then sold it, then opened another company and sold it on real estate and land development. And about 2000, I fell in love with cyber. And it's been uh, an epic love story of knowing that there's so much out there. Um, You know, when Al Gore created the internet, he didn't know what he was doing, right? He had no idea. As these lovely devices have come into our lives, the security around it and and the capability have just overwhelmed us. So I, I started my career in cyber off at Booz Allen um, as a capture manager on cyber portfolios, then just dove deep in and you know worked at a small business, a service-disabled uh, small business called Centuria. Then I worked at a company called Dispersive Technologies, which was a startup. Then I had my own startup and I sold that. And then I became a state legislator in South Carolina, very dedicated to getting cybersecurity right in the state of South Carolina. Um, did that for four years, ran for Congress, and uh, it wasn't successful, but then went right into the Pentagon as a uh, HQE, highly qualified expert on cybersecurity, and created the CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, 
Another program I, I created there was trusted capital and supply chain risk management. And then leaving uh, this February this year, out on my own doing the exact same things, but absolutely love the, you know, because people think cyber is IT and it's not. It's IT and IA, information insurance are a part of it. But cybersecurity is something very different. And risk management is another one. It's just, it's all a part of it. But my love, you know, I bought a book, Coding for Dummies. And I am the worst coder, I would say, but at least I understand binary and I can I can help. But it, it's just, it's a love, it's a passion. And I'm, I'm so blessed in a lifetime that I, I get to do work that I love. So it's not work and I can't turn it off. <laughs> yeah. It's great, isn't it? Like actually getting something that you enjoy, that you're interested in. And I think the thing with this space is you're constantly evolving and learning new things. There's basic principles, like a lot of security principles are very similar. Obviously, they've adapted and changed over time, which you're still keeping current. And that I, I like that part of my job where you get to understand these things, keep it current. And it, there's always something new on the horizon, which keeps it interesting to some extent. Oh, absolutely. There's never a day that goes by that I'm not surprised of a new, uh, you know, TTP from an adversary. Just, oh, well, okay. Didn't even think about that. And that's part of, I, I think the problem for a lot of people is that, you know, we are working from one company, you know, when we're trying to do, you know, things for that country, when you realize what most firms face is a nation state attack, it's not you know, that 16-year-old in the basement that you wish it was, it's, you know, the entire nation of China, you know, all of Russia, all of Iran, and their military components going after our commercial sector, which is challenging, at, especially for the small and the medium-sized businesses out there that are completely unaware that they're being, you know, expelled every single day. So how are you spending your time currently? And what are the key priorities that I know you said you've been doing some consulting? So what are the key focuses of what you're working on? So there are three pillars. The first, I am hell-bent on creating a cyber, I mean, a supply chain risk management consortium where small businesses, uh, medium-sized businesses, manufacturers, et cetera, can come in and for a very, very low fee, be able to look at other vendors and the risk associated with them and not and helping them navigate this. So very much interested. Um, I'm hoping, knock on wood, that will go live in January. I have all the pieces together, the companies uh, working and now just starting to sign up members. So doing that out of volunteerism because I believe in the cause. Secondarily, as I'm helping companies understand risk, and that's you know whether they're uh, looking at their CMMC and how they're going to be Sadly, they're not compliant, how they're going to get there and working through, you know, the ROI. What is the return on investment um, for companies uh, to implement the entirety of the NIST 171? And, and I would say additional, you know, the 171 to me is basic. It's what you should be doing every single day as a, as a company. And then the third pillar um, is strictly uh, guiding people around the snake oil salesmen that are out there telling everyone there's easy buttons, I can get you certified and I can give you zero trust in, in one button. And that's not the case at all. So three distinct pillars, one's voluntary, two income producing to some degree, but I would rather, you know, I, I love what I do. I feel bad charging people for it. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's two things I want to pick up there is like risk management, because like everyone gets obsessed with compliance, but goes, actually, what are the underlying risks involved in this? Because like, oh, I'm compliant, I'm secure. You're like, mm. 
they're really not the same thing. Like that means you're doing the right things, but obviously you need to put it in the context of what your organization does, all the other things you're doing. And I think people get very lost in, well, I, I did the NIST 171. I did the 853. Why did this happen? It's like, well, okay, but there's more risks outside just putting the controls in place. Actually, I spoke on a panel yesterday about just that and how, you know, as businesses are looking to team together on on bid and proposals, things that we would ask each other if, you know, if you were renting a home or an apartment, you know, the questions you would ask, we don't think to ask people we're going to be doing business with, having our our companies intertwined to to deliver a capability. And it was a, a room full of business development and capture folks and I said, you know, are you asking, you know, your teaming partners when you're you're putting your your teams together what their risk stance is? Do they have a, a risk mitigation strategy? Do they have a compliance manager that's helping them with all of the the different compliance? You know, compliance isn't just CMMC or the NIST. There's ISO. There, you know, there's so many ECI. Things. There's, there's, there's so many. I mean, insert. 25, 30, 40 things, depending on what your industry is and what you have to do. And I mean, the UK led the world on getting cyber standards, although the UKs were primarily around data privacy, but also taking that into consideration. We are working in a global environment where you really need to say, okay, listen, I'm very interested in doing work with this company overseas. How do they look at it? And how does that translate? And in the Department of Defense, every country has their own unique security agreement with the Department of Defense. Um, what they're, you know, because there are different laws and, and, and statutes around the globe. In business, it's something that's, I, I would say it's not new, but it's, it's as we're really looking at our five eye partners and truly, you know, the UK, Australia, Canada, big partners for the Department of Defense. How do we do more together and be respectful of each other's compliance issues? Is, is one that I spend a decent amount of time on. Fantastic. So I know you've mentioned it a lot, CMMC. So a lot of organizations have been asked to tackle, I'm going to call it a behemoth, this big thing. Yeah. Um, can you explain to the listeners what the scope of it is? Sure. So the scope, when I started, so back in January 2019, first day in the Pentagon, they tell me, you know, we need to unify cybersecurity standards. It's very complicated for industry. And the reason they brought me in to do the scene is I understood exactly what they were talking about coming from industry, working at literally every level of the industry from, you know, large business to, you know, service disabled veteran owned to a technical startup to owning my own. I got it right. I had to take my own company from CMMI, nothing to CMMI level three. So that was one standard. And the Department of Defense said, to me, my boss, Kevin Fahey, and the Honorable Kevin Fahey and the Honorable Ellen Lord, they came and said, the biggest challenge is industry says that we don't have any you know, continuity. And I'm like, well, we do. We have the DFAR Rule 7012, which clearly states that any company handling CUI has to be compliant to the NIST 800-171. That was done in 2015 by President Barack Obama. Uh, it was in every U.S. contract in 2017. And everybody was just checking the box saying they were doing it. And we knew that they weren't. I mean, obviously. So the the CMMC, when I I started it, I really wanted it to be, you know, some people say I tried to boil the ocean. But I understood in like the ISO standard 27001 and the NIST 800-171 and the NIST 
cybersecurity framework, right? There were commonality in the requirement. They weren't worded the same way, but they had the same derived output. So I mapped all of that together to create a maturity model, like things that you would do, you know, the basic FAR, you know, there are 17 controls, but actually it's only 15 requirements in the FAR, right, which is TMMC level one, which is basically, you know, do you have a password? Do you change your password type thing? All the way up and to build on to maturity. And we originally started off with five levels. CMMC 1.0 was five levels. And it was a compilation of all of these different standards to a maturity model. Level three in that old model was what is currently in the DFAR rule 7012, which is be compliant to the 800-171. Levels four and five back in that model were what was happening with the NIST in the 172 or 171 Bravo or the additional, you know, like a 24-hour SOC capability. Those were unknown at the time in 2019 because they were still deliberating what was going to be in and not so level four and five. Fast forward to CMMC 2.0, right? So we're only at three levels now, level one, level two, and level three. Level one is self-basic self-assessment. Level two is CMMC. It's the 171. And level three is an enhanced, which will either be, you know, the additional 35 to 24 controls, right? On top of the 110 in the NIST already. It was meant, you know, when I created it with my team, it was meant, and I, I not to disrespect any of your viewers and listeners, but I wanted it so an eighth grader could read it and understand it. Because there's a lot of people who this applies to who are not security experts and are being asked to comply with it. So it's, it's I think you tend to see some of these things, you're reading it and you're like, what does this mean? Oh, no, absolutely. You read some standards. I mean, look, some are pretty good at saying like the policy controls and stuff where they're fairly consistent. There's other ones where you've got to unpick some of these things and you're like, what am I being asked to do here? <laughs> exactly. And and that was really one of the, you know, the catalysts. My original team was uh, Stacey Bosjenic, Buddy Dees, and John Choi. And we went out to Carnegie Mellon and Johns Hopkins and said, let's bring the best of the best together. What was really funny in the first four iterations in the year 2019, yeah, gosh, well, I, I, I forget <laughs> how fast I moved on that thing. One of the things I, I give my team back then, it wasn't me, it was them. We met every deadline. I said, we're going to give everyone, you know, I think the first iteration came out in early 2020. We did four iterations, public comment. We, we brought everybody together. And it was actually industry that said to the Department of Defense and to our team that the, the NIST, they didn't think that the NIST 171 was sufficient. They wanted these extra 20 controls that we had put in through all this comment. Never missed a deadline, never missed a date. Take that, you know, I took it very seriously because we were, you know, moving an entire ecosystem was standing up around this. And then the thing that caused the most consternation is as in any other government, right? A change of government, everybody wants to take a pause and say, what what were you doing? That pause in 2021 was, I would say, the worst thing that they could have done um, to re reconstruct. The program instead of continuing to move forward. That was a bad decision made by leadership. Understanding, you know, you need to take a minute to look at everything, but this is a matter of national urgency, national security, and we've got to keep moving. But they've taken the pause button off. They, you know, they reconfigured it. I left the department uh, to try uh, to run for Congress. 
I thought thought it would be easier to go inside the belly of the beast to fix it versus trying to do it from the department because it is really hard doing anything like this at this level. I'm not a patient person. That's <laughs> I was. Um, I, I can I can I can I feel feel the same. Like you want to get things done, you want to push things through, and it's just like red tape, red tape, red tape, and you end up just getting very, I guess, frustrated. So the way I looked at it in the department. And the Department of Defense, I I love the department. I honestly would go back in a minute if we were at a place in a time where we could move things through quickly. The leadership that I happened to be under at the time was amazing. And not to say that there aren't good leaders in the DOD now. I think Bill LaPlante is phenomenal. I think Dr. Heidi Shu. I love Heidi Shu. I, I just, she's been around. She's just really, really good. And Bill LaPlante, just good people trying to make good things happen. But the challenges are so monumental to get anything done there. And I'm I'm saddened that industry hasn't done more to volunteer to get certified. And they're still kind of pushing that idea around. On the other hand, when I wake up and I looked at when I look at LinkedIn in the morning or I read um, you know, any kind of cyber or or defense, this CMMC keeps coming up and I I sit back with all of, you know, I've done in my life and I have made birth two incredibly wonderful children. I have four amazing grandchildren. I'm blessed beyond words. But on my gravestone, I do want to say mommy of the CMMC. I want to say that. Having children and making good people primary, you know, God gave yeah. me that. Right? That one was this big one. Secondarily, biggest thing I ever did in my life was I made an impact, right? I was a disruptor. Yeah. And we need more disruptors to make us uncomfortable with content. You know, complacency is a, is a deadly, deadly thing. People should never be complacent. People don't like change, right? I mean, the other thing is like, you, you, you're kind of also saying, look, there's this thing. We've brought things together. And by the way, you now need to be certified. And there's a deadline. Whenever these things happen, I mean, we had it with GDPR. I'm sure you've had it with other privacy laws there. People aren't happy about it. They hate change and they hate kind of being dragged in to say, actually, you need to do these things. If you don't, there's a consequence now. Well, yeah, that's it's to me, you think about businesses and, you know, a restaurant, and this is the part in the United States I cannot get beyond. If a restaurant, the health department within the state that the, the restaurant exists, came and said, well, we want, instead of all of your sinks at 98 or 100 degrees, uh, the hot water, we want it at 115 or 140 degrees. And you're going to need to add an additional bathroom. Our requirement now is that there, you know, you have one bathroom for every 20 people in the restaurant. There wouldn't be any restaurant looking to the state to say, okay, are you going to pay me for that? Yeah, because... <laughs> It's just common sense, right? And you should be doing it. And we've been telling companies since 2015 to do the NIST, and they haven't. And now the big complaint is it costs too much. It's too hard. No, if you want to get something done, my mom had this, had so many amazing, God rest her soul, but she would say these things to me. You know, if you want something, you will make it happen. Otherwise, you will make an excuse, right? If you want it, you will make it happen. The second thing she said is, you know, I'm the middle, if you can't tell, of three children. I'm a middle child. I have all the earmarks and quality traits of, a, of the middle child. But my mother would drill this into me. Don't, if you come to me with a problem, you better have a solution. Otherwise, you're whining. 
and I don't tolerate whiners. She's like, if there's a problem, find a solution. I've spent my whole life. I don't understand the word no. I need to find the yes. There's always a yes. So when I left the Pentagon, I gleefully handed over reins to Stacey Balsjanik, who last night won. She was one of the federal uh, 50 movers and shakers, and I'm very proud of her. But the reason why when I was a CISO and I was looking to, you know, who was going to bring on to this team, because that's another thing is understanding your own weaknesses and strengths as a leader. This woman had the same mentality. Like there's always a way we can work through a problem. When you hear the word no, she doesn't understand that word either. And I'm so blessed that she's been there taking, she took the reins over and is continuing this. But I think that's probably one of the, the things that most industry is struggling with is we're supposed to be doing this. We should build it into our rates. I've recently heard of at least three submissions on RFPs to the government that said, you know, we are going to increase our cost 10, 10% across the board to be compliant with the NIST. And they still won the work because the government knows. I mean, they don't want, you know, lowest price technically acceptable was probably one of the worst things to happen because it drove people to say, okay, yeah, I'm doing it, but I'm not really doing it. And the challenge right now is, and I've, and another you know side job, side thing I've been doing is working to get the appropriators, the authorizers, and the correct committees in the legislature to understand if you really want compliance, you're going to need to add the money to the defense budget. Because programs today, the, the, the DOD budget, as people are realizing, oh, now I need to start doing this, the cost of doing it will go up and they need to give more money to the DOD. Not to say that they don't get a lot already, but they're, and and I, I will say, I think there's a great deal that could be done to streamline Costs. the Department of Defense in, in many, many ways. And I think that for industry, one of the things coming out is, you know, the, what the White House put out in executive order and they want to have a new, you know, the software bill of material. And they want NIST to accredit software, which scares me because NIST is a standards body, not an accreditation body. So that's not in the realm. But the valley of death to get into to work in DOD or in the federal government in any capability is long. Now you're going to have to go through this initial NIST verification. Then every single agency that you go to, you're going to have to work to get an ATO. I would love to see the government work on streamlining the ATO process to have reciprocity, just like in the CMMC, there's reciprocity for the one set, you know, the ISO standard, there's reciprocity for the essential eight, there's a reciprocity because you shouldn't have to redo things. You know, I think that's going to be something that in the next year, we're going to be feeling a huge impact and we're going to lose technology to our adversaries who are just saying, no, 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 we're more than willing to take it and test it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the, there's lots of things there that kind of, I, I guess you've covered, but there's a lot of organizations looking at this saying they've been affected by CMMC. What do you think the cost implications are and the ROI on doing CMMC? So for me, you know, I think that many of the small businesses should go with an MSP and a CSP, a managed service provider and a cloud service provider for a bulk share of the work. I did a white paper, uh, you know, I, I figured about 80,000 companies and I, you know, I did the, the makeup, you know, the vast majority were companies under 50 employees and the range for, you know, the product of having a GCC high 
instantiation ranged from, you know, $1,200 a seat to $10,000 a seat, depending on the size of the company. The reality is you're going to make that investment or you're not going to be in, involved in the Department of Defense. You know, it's, it's ultimately going to do <laughs> yeah. it or you won't be awarded work. And I love when people say to me, small businesses, we just will go work elsewhere. Well, the world is on the verge of, you know, we're in the middle of a recession. We're, yeah. we're in it, right? Want to be so, changing what you're doing now? Probably yeah. not. <laughs> Probably not going to be anything new and burgeoning coming on scene. And the DOD is pretty steady work. And if you think that you're going to go elsewhere and get a commercial entity to worry about, you know, what your your profit margin is, it, that just isn't going to happen. They'll bleed you dry. And do you also think like if we have it where they'll be like, okay, you need to stop two certification, you need to be ISO 27001 certified to win this contract. You need to do X, Y, Z. If you think you're going elsewhere to win big contracts and there's not going to be a bunch of things pushed onto you, oh, it's probably very is very naive. It's well, so what's really funny in America, we have Jen Easterly who's at CISA um saying, you know, that TSA trains, planes, they need to have cybersecurity. Infrastructure needs to have cybersecurity. When I talked about DIB being 300,000 companies. I understood very clearly what I was talking about because I knew the Department of Defense was the largest purchaser of power in the United States. So critical infrastructure already has cyber requirements on it for the most part, since they're, you know, you look at where military bases, we're buying power from the local power supply. Yeah. You're required because that is considered CUI to be NIST 171 compliant. The United States federal government buys rail space. We we buy containers on rails. So they're already, the railroad is supposed to be compliant. Airplanes, airports that move military personnel or military product have to be compliant. So the standards are already there and there isn't going to be an industry you can go to where it won't be there, right? And I think people get caught up on the fact about, well, do I have CUI or I don't have CUI? And I think the world would be a better place If we took the whole CUI discussion off the table, everybody should consider their company as CUI. Yeah. I mean, if you've got data and it's important to you, like in theory, you should be trying to protect it. Well, not in theory, you should be, right? (laughs) And you've got your customer's data, you've got information, and there's all kinds of things you do where ultimately you need to make sure data is heart of all businesses now. And if you're not protecting it, you're in trouble. Yep. So I just don't understand why people wouldn't get it done. Just stop whining about it. Get it done. There's bigger problems coming down the pipe. You know, our, we're looking to run out of diesel fuel here in a few months, uh, in a few weeks here in the U.S. We have supply chain crises around the world, you know, geopolitical challenges everywhere we go. We have enough problems. Yeah. This one, check off. Other industries are just used to it, right? I mean, if you're working in anything for financial services, like this is just table stakes right and it's just bringing and look everyone follows generally financial services pharma at a certain point or healthcare right and then it filters down and everyone does it i mean this is slightly different but ultimately these things happen and the rest of the world follows on and goes right we have to do this it's probably people kicking and screaming but in the long run they'll probably well they will benefit from it well people were kicking and screaming when you know electricity first came you know (laughs) And they were kicking and screaming when, you know, streetlights were first put in. And, you know, any change is uncomfortable for people. And, and yeah. you know, the, and back to why, you know, the CMMC writing it for an eighth grader to read that anything new, everybody, of course, is fearful of, 
right? But that shouldn't prevent you from diving in and getting it done. I mean, I think that's the human experience, right? When we're afraid of, to do something and we're, um, we come out on the other side and we're like, that was amazing. It's in corporations. Yeah, it's a big thing to tackle and, you know, get on it. Because if you wait, and this is the part that I've, I've told, you know, people are like, well, what's going on with the rule? I'm like, the rule is going to happen. So pushing off getting certified just means when the rule goes live, you're going to be in queue with everybody else who's pu- pushed it off and kicked that can down the road. And you may not win work because you may not be able to get certified in time. So I'd go do it now. I think the other thing here is like it gives a good baseline for building a comprehensive security and compliance program that realistically you should be doing anyway and use it as an opportunity to go actually at a senior level of the business we probably not invested properly in this but you may have but it's standardizing and building a compliance program a security program that will scale and and look you should do that anyway right that's something that everyone should be thinking about so look one of the things that i mean look I'm a, we, i work for a technology provider what role do you think like technology is needed to support CMMC? Is it something that you see as pivotal? Oh, gosh, yes. So, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Please, I beg of people, don't try to be the master of everything. Yeah. Unless you're, uh, you know, a, a large, large company, to be able to do everything in the CMMC is intangible. And I knew it from the get-go, right? I was excited when we first announced CMMC and I had a lot of um, software products come to me and say, well, I meet these requirements in the NIST. Hugely impactful, right? You should look for technology partners who are able to provide you some parts of the CMMC. And I say parts, like even if you go and you you get a, a GCC high cloud instantiation and you have an MSP, there's still back work at home you need to do and to be compliant. Know that using technology to complement your current ecosystem is a good thing because the technology is on the cutting edge, right? You want somebody who's constantly bettering their product, right? Versus you having to figure out what's going on, you know, in, in each of these areas. So I strongly suggest, I've always thought that technology partners were going to be critical to the CMMC. But what I'm leery of, right, is the snake oil salesman that, you know, you go, goes in and says, I'll get you certified overnight. And that doesn't work. We sit all the time where you see people saying, oh, we'll get you ISO certified in a few weeks. And you're like, look, I've heard it. Like, we can buy this tech. It's got all the standards in it. I'm like, okay, but do you know how to implement those standards? Because, like, you can put all the standards in a system and say that we're in a spreadsheet. But have you got the evidence you've done them? Have you got all the policies and procedures and underneath them to like to say that you've done them? Have you got all the evidence collection over a period of time? If the answer is to no, then there's no magic there to go back fill all that stuff. Somebody at that panel I was on yesterday, they're like, "Well, we can do it," and I'm like, "No, you can't. You might be able to deliver, you know, and download software, the training, the implementation of it into processes and procedures, documentation of it, right?" making sure that you put whatever widget in isn't going to affect another widget. And if you have, I look at Navy vessels, right? You you look at a a boat or a ship in the Navy, they don't get updated until they come back to port. So you're a company that's working with, you know, your, your, your contract, you're on, on board with a active carrier, they're out to sea and you're saying you're doing this. You don't have the satellite connection to, to upload that. What the hell are you talking about? It's knowing 
right? The nitinoids of it. But it start at a place of, okay, these are the things I know I can do. And I have people and the resources and the talent to do. And then open yourself up to technology partners that are going to compliment you. Because just know, jack of all trades, master of none. If you want somebody who's really good at, you know, encryption, take the encryption. If you, you know, I think passwords are passe. You know, I, I'm big on tokens. I don't think passwords are a good idea anymore. I think end-to-end encryption and in, in email is a good idea. It's just, pat, you know, the colonial pipeline here in America, anything more than they didn't update their passwords. And the GAO report on the Department of Defense, why, you know, we, the DOD inside, the GAO in 2018 said the Department of Defense, the, the administrator's password was for the most part, P-A, dollar sign, dollar sign, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the thing, isn't it? Like, you can put the best policies and procedures in ever, but like, ultimately, if people don't follow them, you don't test them, you don't check them, you don't do reviews on them. I mean, what's the point of having a policy? Because the auditor is going to come up when you have to certify for any standard. It's going to go, okay, there's your policy. Let's go have a look at a few things and see how it's... Yeah, where the challenge lies, you know, I, I was on a, the panel, I was with this lovely young woman from Microsoft, and she's like, the more automation, the better, right? Let's get this as much automation and AI behind it. And I'm like, yes, I'm with you on that. But the OODA loop is a real thing. And in 1987, if a Russian sergeant didn't look at a satellite and go on a, a, a radar read and say, that's not really possible, we may have been in World War III <laughs> back then. And I think the human in the loop is, is definitely the key. The other part is, I think some companies look at it like it's a weakness, right? That they're not as they're awesome because they have to go out and look at a technology partner. Yeah. No, I think it just alleviates so much. It's just my own thing. I I hope people reach out and test and do, you know, due diligence on your technology partner. We definitely need to do that. Due diligence. Don't take everybody's, you know, you know, I've come in with the, I'm awesome and I can do everything. Okay. Can I talk to a few of your, your current customers and let me know what they think of your product? right? They, they should be able to handle. You check references when you're trying to get a job. You check references when you're trying to get a house or an apartment. Why would you not check references when you're looking to say this, this entity, yes, come into my home, come into my network. So right, do your due diligence, but yeah, I use it. Fantastic. So the other thing here that you, you CMMC, it's, I'm assuming like it's moving down the supply chain, right? It's getting to all kinds of organizations. So is it applicable to all organizations? Where does it stop? It doesn't, right? So if you're a prime, and what's really funny, I don't know if you caught it, this past week, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, filed a lawsuit against a company who wasn't doing basically compliance on their vendors and were exposing people. And they got they brought a lawsuit up against them. For the large primes or a prime in any case, you need to have in your teaming agreements. You need to have as you look down your supply chain, it's going to be an RFPs, you know, RFIs, you know, first your CMMC. How are you going to have compliance on CMMC down your supply chain? But also they're requiring, you know, what is your supply chain risk management program look like? How are you managing risk? We want to understand that. How do you plan on dealing with risk? So the flow down, you know, originally we, when we started this, you know, it's a natural progression. There's a lot of 
cross collaboration. So it's very rare you find a company in the 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 dib that only works with one other company. Generally, they work with a multitude, and they're on a bunch of different contracts. So we figured in the rollout over five years, it would you know trickle down throughout the entirety of the supply chain. I still stand firm that you know once you start requiring it, the the, lar- the prime requires you to do it to go after the bid. And they should sign up for the the joint surveillance voluntary program right now. We should be working as a unified group industry. What are the incentives to do that right now? Because the longer we put off, and I think it's harmful to our national security. When you look at as the work that we're getting and we're moving through and we're building, we're issuing contracts today that are going to be good for five years. And the further we delay this and the further we push it off, industry, do yourself a favor, get on board now, get compliant. And as you start your teaming agreements, that's that's where it's, you know, that's why I talked to BD and Capture yesterday. This is where it starts. Start asking, okay, are you on the track to get CMMC compliance? Okay, when do you think they'll be there? Um, what is your plan of, you know, your rates on this, right? Because we want to understand the rate that you're you're putting so we can write a good RFP and submission and say, we take security so seriously. Rates are generally, you know, we may be a little bit higher than other people, but they may not be compliant, right? That's what people should be doing immediately. You get what you pay for, right, with this stuff. Like, I mean, ultimately, like, if it looks too good to be true, it's too good to it be true. doesn't pass the smell test, right? I mean, and unless they're just doing it to win things, but like long-term contracts, like if it looks too good to be true, it generally is. And we all know you want to be competitive. I mean, I get competitive. I've, you know, been on both sides. You know, I've been on technical evaluation boards in the Department of Defense and I've written my P-win rate is almost at 100% when I was writing proposals. So I understand, you know, how to win work, but there's something to be said where you're putting out into the government and saying security is the most, anybody should put it in their RFP response, right? It doesn't matter if I deliver this on time with the performance criteria and at the cost that we agreed upon, if it's been exfilled before it even makes it to the warfighter. And I know everybody wants to win work, but take a second and remember why you're doing what you're doing. And uh, the lovely young woman that I was sitting next to with from Microsoft said it yesterday. She has a huge team at Microsoft and why they're there and doing what they're doing. And she said a lot of them came to work in the tech sector because they had served time and their life was potentially put in jeopardy because a capability failed. That, you know, that was one of the driving forces of why I went right to the DOD. I don't tell this story often, but in 2007, my first husband was in Iraq and doing a perimeter tour on May 24th. His Humvee, he was in the turret, went over a new storm drain that the U.S. government had put in, the partners, the allied partners had put in. And if you've ever been in a Humvee, you know, they're battle-torn and terror. Why I was so passionate about comms was that my Doug said, halt. And nobody heard him in the rest of the Humvee because the comms were so bad. They ended up going over that storm drain inlet. It was laced with white phosphorus, slipped through that Humvee like a hot knife through butter. And his whole team passed away. And he was the only one to survive. And I look at 
that is something, you know, that fuels me immensely. And the part of it, and it's how I kind of got to the department, the PEO of the MRAP was a man named Kevin Fahey. And I remember him going to Congress and watching him say, you know, Congress is beating him up pretty hard. And they're like, are you going to field test this MRAP? And he's like, it's a truck. I'm adding armor to a truck. I'm not going to field test a truck. I'm going to put the armor on the truck. I'll field test the drivetrain in theater. People are dying. That's why I went to work at the department was that guy and that passion, that passion. Right. So. If you're a pilot taking off in a Blackhawk and the adversary has gotten into one of the systems and you go down, people's lives depend on it. It's that serious. I mean, that's cyber is where, you know, think about this. Our adversaries were to come in and cut off power to the eastern seaboard, a low level uh, EMP wave over the national capital region. Our country would implode. We have to be prepared for this type of thing. And we have to be, you know, an EMP is going to be, unless they start burying all the the wire and fiber, right? It has to go underground. But you think about it, the likelihood and why the supply chain matters, right? This kind of goes into that whole conversation, why you should be asking people in your supply chain, right? The easiest way to get access is the lowest on the chain, right? The easiest to to get in. And then you just go up. Yeah, you just move up, right? You're only as strong as your weakest link. You get in and then you... I mean, it was quite interesting. We had someone else, uh, a guy called Ben Coral, who was on not too long ago. And he was saying when he was a, I think he was a communicator in, in the army. And he said like one of the systems, like the password failed. And this was like in the late nineties. So they, they had to ring him up and they went, oh, it's fine. There's a hard coded password, whatever it was, just put this in. And he was like, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> like, Look, I, I've seen that in things when I did like original audits and like SAP, where it's like, Oh yeah, the key financial systems of a company, and it's like, oh, it's still got the base password of the system admin, in, and you can go and do whatever there. And that's scary. <laughs> that's why I say teaming is where it should start. Like, what do you? What is your posture? Because I really don't want to work with you if you don't take my your stuff as seriously as I do. My brand, my company, my employees, my you know IP, what I've you know built, it means something to me. And if it doesn't mean that much to you, I really don't want to work with you. And I think that that's the posture a lot of companies are starting to get as a ransomware is really, really taking off. I mean, what Killnet did with the airports, you know, a couple of weeks ago, took those websites offline. Yeah, you you jump, <laughs> jump in the gun here, just onto the next question, which is, oh, <laughs> no, no worries. So there has been a great deal of cyber attacks recently across infrastructure, schools. I guess, what are the key takeaways from these and what can we learn from them? that it's it's only going to get worse. This is just the start. You're starting to see the cyber war that we have been in for a minute now starting to affect people in day-to-day life. And it's only going to get worse. Our adversaries, so you look at what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, stalemate. And I've said for years now, the next war is not won in a kinetic fashion. It's the non-kinetic war that is going to be where countries fail and societies fail. And it's cyber. It's the capability to turn off electric or to go in and, you know, what happened at the Los Angeles United School District, right? They put all the student and teacher information, salaries, everything out there. Yesterday, I saw that there was, for $5 million, you can get access to 476 companies. 
through ransomware access. This is the new world order. This is the, I would say, the industrial revolution's cyber revolution, that if you're not cyber secure, you're not going to be in business long. There's big money in this, right? These are not like someone in a bedroom anymore. These are very, very sophisticated groups, nation states who are able to throw ridiculous money and skills at these things now. It's not a... Like, a 2022 estimate on what we have lost in ransomware and cyber espionage globally is in around the $8 trillion mark. Yeah, it's a big business. Yeah. It's a very big business. Because to get the information for free or to exploit someone, it's unbelievable the amount of money that they're making, right? And it's not like you create a DDoS attack, right? You throw it out, you put it out onto the net and you know, phishing schemas, et cetera, what, how you get out there. It's cheap. <laughs> it's cheap. You know, I, it's unlike building a, a weapon, right, that takes years and a lot of pride. This is not a precision thing, right? These guys are getting good at the attacks. And when they hit one supply chain, it's like when FireEye, and, and it's not to say FireEye isn't a good company, right? But do you really think that whoever went through the arduous work to insert malware into a software penetration software only did it to one? That's the point, isn't it? That obviously, like, this is like, and where it's coming from. I mean, I don't know if you remember, it's probably about a year or so ago. Obviously, there was, it was in Sweden, the supermarket chain. Like, it was a yeah. big, basically just couldn't operate for like, was it like 10 days? I mean, I remember, is it four or five years ago when Maersk went down, the shipping company, oh. and, and they controlled what at the time was like, was it one third or something of the, the shipping in the world that just couldn't move? And it's like, well, the impacts it, of this stuff is colossal. Two or three summers ago in the United States, Target, when yeah. Target got hit and went offline, like it was pandemonium. You don't want to make the suburban mom go into to Target for the run, not be able to pay for it, right? That, yeah. That's that's uncool. Yeah. But, so I say the adversary is going to do it slowly, methodically, make our lives painful, uncomfortable. And the art of war the easiest, most effective way to win against any adversary is to let them fight from within, let them destroy themselves within. So as ransomware comes out, you know, thank goodness for Elon Musk buying Twitter and getting, you know, some realism right out there. But imagine if an a adversary, this is as easy as it can be, right? And I tell people this and they're like, no, not really. You're using a really bad example. No, I'm not. Health information exchanges. It's where, you know, in America, we keep our health information records with our insurance companies on these HIEs and that they're very well protected, but nothing is 100% secure. Yeah. So, you know, they go in and they screw around, they get into the, the system and they change the algorithm for pacemaker. They delete it. And then they put out a tweet the next day. Anybody with this pacemaker, blah, 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 blah. It's going to have a patch update because they always get updated. They're software enabled now, Bluetooth enabled, to get updates. It's received a, a upload that it's going to defibrillate you and put you into cardiac arrest within 12 hours. People rush to the hospitals. Rip it out. Take it out. And the person at the desk is going, what do you mean you don't have a pacemaker? We don't see it in your records. We can get you scheduled for an ultrasound, but it may take till a couple of days. How many people do you think that's literally what the adversary is doing? And then the TikTok thing drives me absolutely batty 
because people are like, oh, it's so funny. China has a completely different algorithm for TikTok for their youth. It is about good things. It's about what they're doing amazingly well at, right? And the algorithm for Europeans and, and especially Americans is getting us to do stupid stuff, right? Seeing what we're willing to do. Yeah. But also, it's people don't understand this is cyber warfare, right? They know your IP address. They know where you live. They have I your facial recognition. You can see inside your house where things are. You can understand. Yeah. I mean, digital footprint, right? I mean, the reality is like, it's just not explained to people. Like you're putting things out there and once it is out there, you may delete it, but it might've been reshared and it's gone elsewhere and elsewhere and elsewhere. Like the problem is you're not educating people. I mean, maybe they are, but it's like, be sensible. Think about what you're putting out there. The youth have no idea, right? Yeah. They they're just like, oh, it's it's okay. It's it's just it's just TikTok. Listen, your adversary is really interested in what's are surrounding you. They want to yeah. buy it up, right? So they have control. Yeah. It's all about control. And for businesses, this is you know you think about it, right? What would one tweet do to say if somebody was to put a a now, mind you, not correct, but that your company, you know, your quality assurance or, you know, that you had a product that failed and bad press travels far faster and it's far more detrimental than any good news. As yeah. a recovering, you know, trying to be a servant leader politician, right? One good lie travels a hell of a lot faster than the truth. And people have to realize that's where your adversary's at. And Taking you out, eliminating the dib, eliminating the capability in the dib by, you know, ransomware, by false stories, by, you know, infiltrating. And I'm not saying it happened. I'm just saying this is really odd to me. A couple of years ago, do you remember the F-35 had to get grounded because the fasteners got changed? Yeah. Okay. The supplier didn't change. The supply chain didn't change. But suddenly, somewhere along the line, the fasteners were being tooled one millimeter off and your company, right? If you're a manufacturer, do you know that the machine that you have plugged in and it works on your network, it calls out to get updates. Do you know the IP addresses that, you know, are you looking at that? Yeah. Are you scanning the external perimeter? Do you actually have a good understanding of what you've even got? Like, I mean, look, the amount of organizations where you're like, okay, do you understand what your attack service is? They're like, uh, Mm. Yeah. <laughs> 18 laptops. Yeah, I wish it was just that, right? Yeah. yeah. How many mobile devices? How many other things? <laughs> and and here's the, the other side of it, right? As we have all moved to hybrid environments, not we don't all work in an office anymore. So we were on this panel and I was on with Charles, uh, who is a dear friend. And you know, he's like, the worst thing that you can do your employees think that you, they're going out and they're traveling and they get in a rental car, right? And they're taking their device, which has your email, right? And they're plugging it into the car and they're, they're Bluetooth thing syncing so that they can get to folks. And then you just leave, right? How many people have gotten into a rental car in the past year? And Same you person. say, Ethan's iPhones. It's like, guys, the adversary loves you. You're so easy, right? <laughs> The same thing when you go into, and, and I'm, I, I always carry my own hotspot with me because if you're staying at a hotel, and granted VPNing, right, you're, you're coming in, but know that you're entering through a portal that is owned by somebody else. Think about that. They're controlled by somebody else. And your VPN, once you get your VPN, is great. 
it's like you're walking through glass to get there. That's where all this is coming. You know, the, the stuff that's coming. People just don't think. You know, would yeah. you think that, oh, wow, if an adversary wanted, you know, to watch, you know, pick a person in particular, they're tracking because you're foolish enough to put all your capabilities and certifications out on LinkedIn. They're tracking you and they watch you rent a car. They just go rent that car. And yeah. it's not that hard. I mean, you can see it from even just like, if you look at like how clever advertising software is, right? And how targeted it can be. And when there's money involved, what can be done, yeah. put two and two together. Like it's not, it's not difficult when they can profile you, understand everything about you, where you go, where you shop, what you do. I mean, there used to be a thing, I think in the UK where years ago, like this, like, you know, like club cards, like a card for when you spend at a store. They used to be able to say, actually, I know when you're having an affair before because you've, your spending patterns have changed, right? And, and that's 20 years ago <laughs> that they could do that. I mean, we've moved on a long way since. So there was a, a study done, I think it was five years ago, facial recognition software off the coast of Norway, I want to say it was. But this software had identified 5 million fish separately. They all had their own identity. They knew these fish by the scales, by how they were colored. They were individual fish, 5 million of them underground, underwater. Now take that's five years ago, right? This space is just scary to me what we are not thinking about our exposure. And we get caught up in the disinformation that we're given and we take because we've been raised in a certain time frame in life, right? We were subject to critical thinking because we didn't have the access to the internet that this generation does. Well, my kids did, right? We had to have the critical thinking of saying, you know, that just seems too good to be true because critical thinking was a part of our thinking. It's not for most people now. It's something that, you know, if if it pops up on here, it's real. Yeah. This is not your friend. This is a tool. And you should learn how to harness this to work for you and you not work for it. That's I get the base premise for the CMMC is have your technology work for you, save you to protect you and not, you know, work for the technology. Reverse that so that you, you're you the master and the commander of your domain. So we're going to move on to a few, I guess, final questions before we wrap up. So what do you think makes a good CISO? A good CISO is somebody who can listen and translate. IT folk speak a different language than the C-suite would probably understand, right? A CISO can understand all the different aspects. So they're the chief information security officer. It doesn't mean that they're just about cybersecurity. They're about physical security. They're about risk mitigation. So a CISO really needs to understand and how to prioritize what risk and vulnerabilities are out there and be able to effectively communicate selectable neglect. There are certain things. There's just no return on investment to go after. There's a significant return on investment to go after this. These would be the policies and protocols and procedures that should be in place to give us the best shot of, of winning this war or, or getting this. But a CISO's best skill needs to understand that they're the belly button of a team, of the entirety of the organization. They're the belly button. And they have to be able to listen and communicate effectively to the other in the C-suite what the challenges are. 
an IT guy saying, you know, listen, my encryption keys are, are, are you know, they're, they're not, I, I need to get new encryption keys, right? And I need a million dollars over the next, you know, six months to get this all done. How do you convey that to the lawyer and to the, the CFO who are like, wait, 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 what? Why do you need that? Where is that written? Where Why do we have to have that? Well, the CISO would be the one to say, okay, well, it's in this contract that we have to have this done. Here's the risk yeah. if we don't. Here's the, like, you're building up, like, you're taking technical problems, you're understanding the actual risk of that problem, and then you're conveying it to business people to go, look, if we don't do this, here is the consequences, this is what we should do. Ultimately, you need to make this decision, but my recommendation would be A or B. And, and you know, critical thinking and strategic thinking are critical to a CISO and know that you're not going to solve every problem, but the ability to listen is huge and then say, okay, the best of knowledge. Now, what I think is really important and we need to have a larger discussion is the hold harmless than the safe harbor for CISOs because they are making decisions based on the information that they have. Um, if a decision turns out to be wrong, you know, that's the challenge, right? Everybody's risk adverse. I don't want to be the one to say who did that. You know, I don't want to be. That's why I was really good at what I did in my job because the buck stopped with me. I was okay with taking that risk. Losing my job if I made a bad decision was something that I was willing to to accept that risk. That's a, a problem for a lot of people that they just, they're afraid to be the risk taker. Or the other side of that coin, right, is to walk into a company and for people that have been your your friends or you know your associates for four, five, 10, 20 years, and you're coming in and you're saying you're doing it wrong, that's a hard pill to swallow, right? Like, yeah. You're not doing it right. So, I mean, there's a lot of things, but I think that we need to help the CISOs with safe harbor, with, you know, you're bringing problems to us. We shouldn't, you know, hang your hat on them. You know, you look at Uber, you know, Joe Sullivan, bless his heart, right, made a stupid, stupid decision. When Uber got hacked, he, you know, went and found the hackers and signed them, signed NDAs and not tell the FCC or anybody else about it. That was a bad CISO move. Stupid. <laughs> But it's also, you know, if you have a CISO who's coming in and saying, you know, okay, listen, there's, there's, you know, I actually had this conversation with the CISO of one of the largest companies in the U.S. two nights ago at dinner. And he's like, there's a particular entity that has had a ransomware attack. And the first thing I said to do was quarantine them, cut them off. And if we, the only way we can talk to them is by the phone. That's how we talk to them. And we get this established. That is CISO. That's the decision that you have to make and say, okay, cut them off now immediately. And then we need to triage and we'll come back to you. We'll get back to you. That's the, what we need in CISOs. And, and the fact that that CISO has earned the respect within his organization that when he says that, they're like, yes, we need that. So, I mean, taking on from building off what you said there. So what are the lessons that we can learn from the last year? And I mean, how would you apply them going forward? The, well, the, the lessons of the past year First, ransomware is exponentially up. I mean, I've read, you know, reports that, that vary anywhere from, you know, it's up, you know, 75% to 200% from the year before. So the lessons that we've learned is, you know, uh, complacency and avoidance and, uh, you know, not getting on it is costing you money, whether you realize it or not, to just go ahead and do it because it's needed for your business to succeed. Don't wait for the government to solve your problems. They're not there to solve your problems. The United States, our, our constitution is not a problem solving 
entity, right? That's not what we founded ourselves on. So if you're waiting for the government to come in and save you, they're not, right? You get hit by ransomware, and I'll give you a true story. It was Christmas Eve 2020. We got a phone call. Secretary Mnuchin back then got a call and called my boss who called me. And they're a small business within one of our more critical supply chains had gotten a ransomware attack and had a million dollar fee. And they, you know, they're just like, so how do we pay that? And like, we don't. We don't pay terrorists. We don't pay ransomware. That we don't yeah. do that, right? That company went out of business and it's happened and we're watching it. So are you willing to risk losing your business versus investing and getting compliant to something you're already supposed to be doing. And as you have witnessed the past year, if it hasn't taught you when they can take an airport website offline, if they can hit a colonial pipeline, if they can go into school districts, there was hospitals that have been hit. You're no different than anybody else in the ecosystem. And if those people who think that they're, think about a hospital, school, and airports, and you think you're better? Yeah. Come on. If that isn't what you've learned in the last year, You've learned nothing. Yeah, well said. So if you could have one wish in security to solve one thing, what would it be? I wish that for the United States, I wish Congress would pony up the money to give to the Department of Defense to not argue and belittle the fact that you should have already been doing it. Let's just get the money to get it done. Yeah. The resources to get it done. That would be the Katie wish, right? I've asked for $10 billion to go into the DOD, you know, to sprinkle it through so that those companies who can't get compliant, get compliant. We continue the work. We move on. You know, this is our new level playing field and let's just go for it. That would be my wish because otherwise it's going to be a painful few years. And the way the DOD budgets work, the federal government works for anything new to start, something old has to stop. And that would be my wish. So we always ask this question right at the very end. Um, what one security leader, um, if there is someone you'd like to refer to get to, for us to get on this podcast? Harvey Riskoff. Okay, fantastic. Have you ever met Harvey Riskoff? No, I haven't. He is one of the world's, and I will introduce you to him, fantastic. Um, cyber lawyers. And he has been a dear friend, just a phenomenal, to talk to Harvey in an hour, you get a lifetime of education. And as far as cyber law, there's nobody better that I know of than Harvey Riskoff. He's, if I had a playing deck, you know, I always say if I had, a, I, I talk about people playing poker, right? Who would I have in the hand for me to play poker? Harvey would be my lawyer, that guy. So I will connect you to Harvey Riskoff. Thank you very much. So thank you, Katie, for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, can you let our listeners know where they can get in contact with you? If you've got LinkedIn, any other areas that they can reach out to you on? LinkedIn, um, just, you know, Katie Arrington. There's only one of me out there that I'm aware of. But my email, if they want to reach out to me, is karrington, K-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N, at ldinnovations.com. More than happy uh, to chat with anybody. Um, love talking about cyber all day, every day. People are like, I'm sorry to bother you. You're really busy. I'm no more busier than anybody else is. So... I'm always ready and open to talk. But thank you once again for the opportunity. And I can't wait actually to watch the Harvey interview. He's just such a good egg. He was the lawyer over Gitmo. I mean, he's just got some crazy stories that he's, he's what he's done. But he was one of the resources I leaned into and talked to about, you know, what is cyber insurance going to look like? And Harvey's the guy. So Fantastic. I will look forward to that interview. All right. Thank you very much, Katie. I appreciate it. All right. You take care. God bless. Be safe. Be well. Thank you.